0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University
1: of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So good evening. My name is Harry Helling. I'm the Executive Director of the Birch Aquarium here at Scripps. I'd like to welcome you to the Jeffrey B. Graham Perspectives on Ocean Science lecture series. This evening, it is my great pleasure to introduce our speaker, Dr. Ron Burton. Ron is a professor of marine biology, and he specializes in evolutionary genetics and molecular ecology of marine organisms. His work integrates molecular genetics, biochemical physiology, and population genetics to study patterns of dispersal and adaptation to environmental changes in the sea, as well as mechanisms underlying the formation of new species. He studied natural populations of copepods, crabs, sea urchins, and abalone and fish. He also examines the relationship between molecular genetics and physiological variation within species. Burton received both his undergraduate degree and his Ph.D. from Stanford University. He's held faculty positions at University of Pennsylvania and the University of Houston before joining us here at Scripps. He helped to develop and continues to teach the UCSD's Interdisciplinary Environmental Systems Program and also co-teaches the popular Introduction to Marine Biology course for UCSD undergraduates. He also served as the head of SIO's biology section for over 10 years. He has served as a member of the editorial board of three major scientific journals, including Evolution, Journal of Experimental Marine Biology and Ecology, and Marine Ecology Progress Series. Burton has published more than 110 scientific papers. Please join me in welcoming Ron for this talk entitled, Feeling the Heat, Evolution in a Changing Environment. Dr. Ron Burton.
0: Thanks very much, Harry, and thank you all for coming tonight. Uh, I've already uh, seen that I've changed the title of my talk, but the basic idea is the same. What I want to talk about tonight is the relationship between global warming, ocean warming in particular, and how uh, different levels of biology are affected by that warming. So there's a lot of uncertainty uh, in our predictions of what the climate is going to do over the next decades and centuries, for sure. But what seems to be a sure thing is the climate right now is getting warmer. So whether you believe that it's warming very quickly or warming more slowly, it is clearly warming. And that warming has effects that are uh, broadly observed. So, for example, uh, the aquarium for a long time had an exhibit called Feeling the Heat. It was primarily focused on the physical uh, effects, the, the effects that we can see on the planet in terms of things like rising sea level, retreating glaciers, the opening of the Arctic, and so on. And it actually had very little to do with biology. And that bothered me because... I'm a biologist. And so as a biologist, you know, this global warming to me uh, is only really important if it's affecting biological systems. And while we can see, you know, the, the pictures that are are so iconic of, of polar bears stuck on, on tiny icebergs and that their habits is, had is rapidly disappearing... I wanted to get a broader view of this general topic. And so what strikes me as a biologist is that temperature impacts all levels of biological organization. And that goes from ecosystems to populations to individual organisms, cells, and the molecules that make up those cells. And in in thinking about how he was going to deliver this talk, I had a big problem. I couldn't decide whether to start at the small end and work up or start big and work down. The small end is attractive to me because that's where I focus most of my work, and you're going to hear about that whether you like it or not. But the uh, the large-scale things tend to attract more attention, so I thought I would uh, start there. And so changes in temperature can have large ecosystem impacts. They can affect the distributions of species. As, as climate gets warmer, things tend to move more towards the poles. Uh, it can affect changes in what we call phenology. Phenology is a term that refers to the timing, the seasonal timing of events, like reproduction. Okay. Both types of changes can lead to mismatches between organisms and their food resources and ultimately disrupt food webs. So if an organism uh, changes its geographic distribution, it's not always the case that the food organisms that it relies on show similar changes. So while it may need to change in order to satisfy its tolerance of uh, thermal regimes, Uh, If its food resource stays behind, that's going to put it in an awkward position, to say the least. Similarly, organisms are reliant on on prey, and and if their phenology changes, that can really mess things up as well. So larval fish are often reliant on plankton blooms uh, for food resource. So if... Uh, fish start spawning earlier, and the plankton haven 't made similar changes in phenology uh, that could also disrupt the resources the food webs and Of course, if we disrupt food webs, uh, that could ultimately impact the productivity of some of our important fisheries so the question is these ecosystem impacts it 's easy to talk about them, but can I actually see them happen have Can we observe the effects of ocean warming on the geographic distribution of organisms? And we all have uh, favorite examples, but I want to talk about two uh, studies, neither of which I was involved in, that uh, really make this point clear. The first was done at Hopkins Marine Station at Stanford uh, along the coast in Pacific Grove, And the uh, interesting thing was, because it's a study area for marine biology, there have been careful studies of the organisms living in the intertidal uh, done in the 1930s. And then, again, because it's uh, a place where students are there every year, uh, the studies basically could be repeated in the 1990s and repeated with great accuracy because the little... Uh, uh, nails, the screws and bolts that were used to hold transect lines in place in the 1930s were still present in the 1990s, so they could actually look at exactly the same places 60 years later. Well, what had happened in the 60 years is the ocean had warmed. And so here you can see uh, some traces of, of temperature of January th- through the year. Uh, this is an average from 1921 to 1931. And then this is the, uh, in the 90s, from 1983 to 1993. And you can see that it warmed substantially, uh, always warmer, but especially uh, in the summer. So what was the impact The impact was if they looked at the organisms living along that transect and looked at the abundance of each species that had been observed in the 30s and compare it to the 1990s, what they found was an interesting pattern. There's a bunch of species that live there that are called the northern species And those northern species are species that occur at Hopkins Marine Station but actually continue further north. Their primary distribution is at Hopkins Marine Station and to the north. And those northern species at Hopkins Marine Station were found to have declined substantially over the years, over the 60 years between the two studies. In contrast, there are the southern species, the ones that live to the south of Hopkins Marine Station and on up to the Marine Station. And those species, on average, increased fairly dramatically in abundance. So what this means was there was a clear pattern after 60 years and of global warming and ocean warming at the, as measured specifically at the study site that showed that southern species are moving in. They're moving north, as you would expect if it's getting hotter and hotter. The southern species can now tolerate the more northern uh, sites. and The northern species were either moving out or simply dying off. So pretty dramatic evidence of changes in geographic distribution. Another study, and I picked this one because the the lead author Joel Fodry, was a Scripps student, and what he found was in studies of of the Gulf of Mexico, uh, comparing some work that had been done in the nineteen seventies to work done uh, by him in in the later uh, years of two thousand seven or so. He compared the fish communities that lived. In this region. And what he found was first, he had measures of the temperature uh, over the course of that period, and you can see the temperatures rising through that time period. Actually, the bottom graph is the ocean surface temperature, the more relevant one. And you can see it's much warmer here than it was back in the uh, 80s in this case and he saw again sort of a similar pattern to what they saw at Hopkins Marine Station just looking at fish species and comparing the fish species that were observed in this site in the in this case in 1985 versus 2006 and what he found was a number of species were lost from the community and the interesting thing was those were essentially all cool water species Whereas the species that were suddenly gained that hadn't been seen in the community previously were warm water species moving in. So in the Gulf of Mexico, the species disappear because you can only go so far north, right? And then you hit, of all places, Louisiana. And and once you hit Louisiana, you cannot go further north. And so if it's too hot for you to the south, and you've hit Louisiana, all you do is go extinct. Well we've started our own little study here off of the pier and what, what my lab has been doing for the past six years, so not nearly enough time to see these sorts of patterns I've been talking about, is collect fish eggs off of the pier. So We go out weekly at the end of Scripps Pier and lower a net and raise the net, and and then spill out what we collect, and looking specifically at the fish eggs, these are different uh, fish eggs here, and looking to see if we can find patterns with environmental temperature. We don't think we're going to see any long-term changes yet, or have only been looking for six years, but for those of you who swim or surf in the ocean, you'll recognize that this year is the warmest year by far that we've had. Uh, as far as I know and and we hit extremely high temperatures and For the first time this year in our six year survey, we started seeing eggs, only a couple, but eggs from this particular species of flying fish, which is normally found uh, further south in mexico so the interesting thing about looking at the eggs rather than just spotting the the organism itself is the eggs indicate reproductive activity. So this species isn't only just you know flying through. It's a flying fish, after all. Uh, in fact, it's, it's actually breeding in the local area, because fish eggs hatch very quickly in a matter of a couple of days. So if we catch a fish egg, we, that means that they're spawning locally. So this is evidence of of a a fish species that may well be uh, shifting its geographic distribution in response to ocean warming. I'm not going to talk as much about phenology, but it's it's clearly important. And again, a Scripps student, uh, Rebecca Ash, did her PhD dissertation looking at phenology of, of fish larvae in the California current off of off of uh, Southern California here. And what she found was that phenological events had clearly occurred earlier and earlier uh, in more recent decades and that zooplankton that the fish will be feeding on were not shifting uh, synchronously. And so she was calling out that there could be a, a problem coming here as the fish Uh, shift their timing, but their food supply is not being shifted similarly, and this could uh, potentially lead to reduced recruitment into those fisheries. So that's kind of my ecosystem-level discussion, and we're going to be drilling down uh, uh, first to uh, populations of organisms and ultimately to molecules. But the main point I want to make in in this transition is that when we talk about the distribution of fish species and so on, we're usually thinking of all of them as being equal, and yet we know there's a lot of genetic variability within all natural populations. So if you look around you, you can quickly assess there's a lot of genetic variation in the natural populations of humans sitting in this room. Darwin in, in coming up with his theory of natural selection and evolution uh, was, was the first to make a big deal out of this, that natural populations harbor significant variation for a broad range of traits and that that variation is essential for natural selection and adaptation to occur. But of course Darwin didn't know genetics. And we now know the physical basis of inheritance, which Darwin did not know, and that is DNA. And we now know how variation is introduced into populations, and that's by mutations in the DNA. And best yet, we have amazing new technologies that allow us to sequence DNA and precisely reveal the DNA differences between individuals and ultimately between populations and species. So these tools allow us to assess the, the, the basic level at which genetic variation occurs, and that is changes in the DNA molecule itself. So how much variation is there within a species? And that, of course, varies with species. I'll talk about a different species in a few minutes. But to give you a baseline that you can relate to, uh, any two humans differ on average at only 0.1% of their DNA. That's on average. And given that the human genome is 3 billion base pairs, that means that any two individuals on average differ at 3 million positions along their DNA. That's a lot of genetic variation, and that's a lot of variation that natural selection could potentially act upon. So uh, I'm sorry about my artistic talents, but uh, this is what I could come up with for a quick demonstration of how Thermal stress, how increases in temperature would affect a population that has genetic variability. And uh, some of this sort of makes sense and some doesn't. If we looked at a, a population of fish and said there's a lot of genetic variation, and I've indicated that by different colors, but of course what's important here is not the color of the fish, but how tolerant they are of thermal stress. Okay? So they're living at a nice temperature, and then there's a heat wave. Okay, temperature gets hot, and some of these fish learn how to do the backstroke. So they, they <laughs> die off, and uh, one of the problems with this is once they die, they can no longer reproduce, and because of that, uh, even when temperatures uh, return to more normal, that. Set of genetic variants that could not survive the stress will have died off, and changed the genetic composition of the population, leading to a population that, on average, is more tolerant to higher temperatures. Now, I, I put this in to remind me to to tell you that you know we often think about survivorship as the key. You know, we have to survive, uh, and if we don't survive, we don't leave our genes to the next generation. But the temperature effect on organisms isn't just whether or not they survive. And so here, just for a bunch of kelp species and stolen out of a lecture I gave a couple days ago in a class, is the lethal temperature. So these are different. Uh, species of of kelps, and and uh, these are the temperatures at which those species die. Okay, but death is you know death is pretty permanent. We got to say that. But there's another level of death, and that is reproductive death. If you can't reproduce, then effectively, from an evolutionary point of view, you're dead. And so even though chondrous here can survive up to 28 degrees C, it stops reproducing at 15 C, which is substantially lower temperature. And so, again, I just wanted to point out that while I'll often be focusing on lethal temperatures, there are a whole series of temperatures that are key to whether or not an organism can persist in an environment. They can survive, but they won't persist if they can't reproduce. So what are the sorts of evolutionary responses to the environment? And how can we see those responses? And one approach, and the approach that we'll focus on today largely, is that we can look at populations of organisms that are distributed in different habitats that have different environments. So if we're interested in how organisms will respond to increases in temperature, one way to do that, and it has its flaws, but in general it's a reasonable approach, is to compare populations that currently exist in warm locations to populations that exist in in hot po- I'm sorry in cooler populations so by assuming that they've been in those locations for some period of time what we're seeing is the evolutionary response of the organism to differences in temperature of course along with temperature when you compare two populations you have to realize other things will also vary but uh, we'll look focus on uh, temperature. A second way to assess whether organisms can adapt to the environment is more direct, and that is you can, for some organisms at least, bring them into the lab, expose them to uh, stress, killing a fair number of them, let the remainder reproduce, and go through that in several cycles, basically simulating what would happen in the natural environment. So those uh, experiments are called experimental evolution. We're simulating what evolution would do, but we're speeding it up by applying laboratory uh, high stresses and so on. So first, is there any evidence that we uh, actually have differences in thermal tolerance among populations of the same species. There's a lot of physiological work that goes on that compares different species that have different physiological uh, tolerances, but there's actually a little bit less work comparing populations within a species. And this particular study was done by a student, Lonnie Gleason, in my lab, and she studied turban snails, common uh, gastropod along our coast. And she compared a variety of different uh, measures among three northern California populations versus three southern California populations after bringing them into the lab and raising them under common conditions for uh, over a month. So they've had time to acclimate to the same condition And hopefully then the differences that we see in their performance are largely due to genetic differences between the populations. And what did she find? Well, this is just a a, a graph of survivorship uh, following a temperature stress. On the bottom here you can see the stress temperatures are up to 39, 40 degrees C. These animals live on rocks that become exposed at low tide and with the sun beating down on them, they get quite hot. And what she found was that survivorship uh, at the different temperatures, I think I actually have this reversed. I do. So uh, forget the colors uh, because that'll screw you up for sure. The northern uh, populations Uh, which are circled in blue, correspond to the red uh, circle. Unfortunately, I did that wrong. Uh, But the point is, is there's a significant difference between the populations in terms of their survivorship with the northern populations much more sensitive to thermal stress than the southern populations. And we'll see if I get the circles right on future graphs here. The, most of the rest of the talk is going to focus on this, a beautiful, beautiful organism. Okay? Shown slightly larger than life size. This is a pair of, of copepods that are actually about a millimeter long each. Okay? So these are tiny, tiny little things that live in high tide pools all along the North American coast from Alaska down into Baja. And because of what I said before, this makes it a neat study system because we can collect animals from Alaska that don't see the high temperatures that we see down in Southern California and Baja. Interesting. I lost a couple pictures here. The interesting uh, things about this organism and why I've uh, worked on it for now like 40 years (laughs) is uh, that they're easy to collect in the field, you know. So uh, marine biologists, those of you who come and see other marine biology talks, you have to be impressed with the fact that we can go to the bottom of the deepest trenches and go all around the world and collect. I like to go to uh, the local beach, hang out, and collect in the tide pool, and then stop at the taco shop on the way back. (laughs) The animals restricted to the very highest rock pools, so you know there's sandy beaches and then there's rocky pools, and uh, these things are only found in the high rocky pools. They're need for doing evolutionary experiments and genetic experiments because they have a fast generation time. Uh, For a generation, takes about three to four weeks. They're easy to rear in the lab, which again makes them unusual among marine organisms, many of which are are difficult to maintain in the lab. We can raise families of copepods in tiny little petri dishes. They have very broad physiological tolerances, as you might expect, because they live in the high tide pools where uh, temperature and salinity varies a lot. We'll talk specifically about temperature a little more in a minute. And I already stated they have the broad range. So the populations live, again, on these high rock uh, areas and only in the highest pools. And then if you're familiar with our coast, as I'm sure you all are, there could be long stretches of sandy beach where the animals don't occur. And then there'll be another rocky headland where they occur. And over the course of my mere 40 years, the one thing I can tell you definitively is those populations along the coast are strongly differentiated genetically, okay? And we'll we'll see the implications of that. Again, this is a very difficult organism to work with. You can see uh, here's uh, Alice, she's in the audience here, uh, showing her skill at collecting copepods, which requires mastery of a turkey baster and a fish net. When a, a Former postdoc in my lab, once he left my lab, he did his best work. It always seems to work that way. Uh, he did a study that's had a great impact on our, our work. We, up to the point that this uh, paper was, was published, we were not sure if populations of this species adapted to the thermal differences in the different sites along the coast. Because even though I said Alaska doesn't get as hot, it does get pretty hot on a, in a small tide pool on a hot rock. So when sun is shining on a hot rock in Alaska, it gets pretty hot. And we thought that maybe it wasn't quite so different between all of the sides. But what uh, Chris Willett did was he took populations from San Diego on up to Vancouver Island brought them into the lab, reared them for a full generation under common environmental conditions, and then he tested them at different temperatures to look at survivorship. And What he did was these extremes, you'd think this is kind of crazy, in in fact, to take an animal from 20 degrees, which is what we culture them in, roughly room temperature, and to put them into a water bath at 37 degrees for an hour and see who survives. But what he found was Southern California animals survive quite well. Anywhere from 70 to 90 percent of them survive this stress. As you got up to Santa Cruz and further north, survivorship dropped to zero. Okay. And, you know, nobody believes this when you first see it. So we've reproduced these results multiple times uh, in various ways using different assays and so on. And we can say it's very clear that there's a difference in these populations thermal tolerance. And the differences persist over generations. So we bring these into the lab, and like I said, the generation goes uh, every month or so, and they've been in the lab for six months or more, and if we test them again, they still show these differences in thermal tolerance. Now, is it silly to test these these animals at 37 degrees? I mean, we know the seawater here even you know, when it gets hot, doesn't go to 30 degrees. Okay? Well, what's going on in the ocean versus what's going on in a tide pool can be quite different. And a student of mine, Reggie Blackwell, pictured here, used these little temperature loggers. They're literally the, the size of a nickel or so. And you could embed these into pools that you know have the animals living in them. And they'll record the temperature. We had them set up to record the temperature every 20 minutes for a full year. He had to replace them a couple times over the course of the year. I think they can only go for about three months okay, on their memory. And what we have here are the traces between Santa Cruz. So these are pools in Santa Cruz that have the animals living in them, the little copepods. And these are pools in San Diego. And what we see over the course of the year is that, in fact, it doesn't often get above 35 degrees in Santa Cruz, but there was a day where it actually hit 40. Okay? This is one day over across the entire year. You can see uh, in the winter it's obviously colder, and then during the summer we get some days where the peak temperature can be quite high. The other thing you can see is how much the temperature changes in these pools over the course of a day. We can easily see 20 degrees C variation across a day. Now in contrast, this is San Diego, and you can see the number of times that we exceeded 35 and actually hit 40. There were four different times when we hit 40. This time it was a couple of days in a row. So it is in fact true that pools in Southern California see more heat stress than Northern California, and they see heat stress that's not too dissimilar to what Chris Willett was putting these animals through, which is moving them from 20 degrees to 35 degrees. In fact, some of these animals see from 25 degrees to 40 degrees in a given day. So the fact that the populations differ, I'm just going to back up, at that temperature is actually ecologically relevant. So there's strong evidence for population differences in thermal tolerance, and not surprisingly southern populations are more tolerant, and it corresponds to differences in their local environment, and those differences are persistent across generations. Now, I told you that a a second way of assessing whether evolution is causing adaptation or can cause adaptation to uh, thermal stress is by doing experimental evolution. And this was a very interesting study done by uh, Morgan Kelly as a grad student at Davis. And what she did was exactly you know, as I described before, take a bunch of animals, and she did this separately for eight different populations, take a bunch of animals, expose them to uh, high temperature, high enough that actually kill 50% of the animals, let the remaining animals reproduce, and then put them through the same treatment again, killing off 50% each time, and each time raising the temperature slightly, uh, to attempt to make the animals more tolerant. And what she found in response to this laboratory uh, selection was small but significant changes in five of eight of the different populations. So that's what these bars are, is showing uh, the increase in thermal tolerance in terms of degrees. And so these that are showing a big response are showing that in five generations the uh, tolerance of the animals increased by half a degree. Now, half a degree doesn't sound like much, but in fact the tolerance differences between Santa Cruz and San Diego animals are only on the order of one to two degrees. So, the fact that in five generations we can get a half a degree change is actually a pretty significant finding that the animals can respond to uh, uh, the extremes of the thermal environment. Why, in her experiment though, in her conclusion, she discusses, well, why didn't they change more? You know, why only that much? And I would say that one of the big problems with lab experiments is the size of the populations used. So in her experiment, she was using on order of 50 to 100 animals as opposed to a tide pool of tigriopus which easily can have 10,000 animals. The amount of genetic variation that she captures in her smaller population is going to be less than what you see in a natural population and therefore you actually expect a smaller response. Okay, so we've seen differences between the populations and what I'm interested in as an evolutionary geneticist is can we find the actual DNA mutations that are responsible for differences in thermal tolerance? Okay. A few years ago, this would have been uh, ridiculous to think we could actually do this in my lifetime. Uh, now it's just silly. No, now it, it actually can happen. And the good news and the reason why we can approach this is that just this year we've published, uh, my lab along with a couple colleagues, published the full DNA sequence of the Tigreopis genome and found that it's 200 million base pairs, okay? Smaller than human, right? Human is 3 billion. Okay? That's the good news. We can lay out the whole genome and see the uh, sequence. The bad news is that the populations that we were interested in, Santa Cruz and San Diego, for example, differ by about 2.6%, which means there's over 5 million base pair differences on average, between the two populations. Hmm, that's going to make it a little hard to sort through, you know, one by one, if there's 5 million. So how do you go about doing this? And that's where new genetic tools have made things uh, much more straightforward. Now before we look at how we actually approach this, first we have to think about how organisms respond to stress at the cellular and molecular level. And so uh, as most of you know, uh, animal bodies are typically made up of, of thousands to billions of individual cells. Okay? Inside the cells, the most of the work is done by proteins. So proteins, uh, here it says proteins do all the work. Proteins make up the structure of the cell. They're the enzymes that carry out metabolism. They provide the signals to coordinate metabolism and movement and everything else uh, across uh, the organism. So DNA encodes proteins, and the proteins Provide the structure and enzymes uh, that make cells work. It's sort of a caricature. We could talk about this for a few hours if you prefer. Interestingly, as proteins uh, are encoded, as I said, by DNA, but that just encodes the amino acid sequence of the protein, then the proteins. Fold into conformations that allow them to do their work when proteins aren't in appropriate conformations they can no longer do their work and maybe one example that you guys are, are familiar with is hemoglobin for example in order to carry oxygen forms a certain structure uh, for different subunits and so on and if you heat up a protein what happens well, if we have a cell and uh, living in an environment and the environmental temperature goes up and the cell temperature goes up, what happens is that the normally folded proteins capable of doing their work unfold. And once they're unfolded, they actually aggregate because parts of them are sticky, and those sticky parts are usually folded inside of the protein, but when it's unfolded, the sticky parts are available and the proteins all stick together, form aggregates, losing their function and basically causing the collapse of all the networks that are required for cells to function, leading to cell death. So what we want to do now is use a tool, a a genetic tool, to try and figure out which proteins are being expressed, being made from the DNA in response to heat stress, and can we see differences between populations. And without going into details, we use a a procedure called RNA-Seq or RNA sequencing. And using that, we found a set of genes that respond differently to thermal stress in the two populations that we're studying here. In the San Diego population, this line indicates that there's no change in the amount of RNA message when the animal is uh, exposed to heat stress. Okay, So what's on this axis is control conditions, on the vertical axis is heat stress. If you make more of the protein under heat stress it'll be up here if you make less you would be down here and what you can see is both populations make more of these proteins but they make much more oops they make much more of the proteins in San Diego than they do in Santa Cruz Now we can use another trick if we look at one of these proteins that's upregulated more in Santa Cruz, I'm sorry, in San Diego than in Santa Cruz, can we prove that it actually has an impact on thermal tolerance? And the genetic trick we use here is called RNA interference. Trust me, it it, uh, it basically allows you to manipulate the expression of a gene, and in particular, allows you to reduce the expression of a particular gene. So, we have a gene that's normally turned up rapidly in response to thermal stress. We can stop it from being turned up, specifically the one gene that we're looking at, and see what happens. And what we found when we did that was the animals die in much higher proportions. So, this one gene out of all of the genes, the 15,000 or so genes in the organism, this one gene is playing a significant role that if it's not being expressed p- properly, it reduces the survivorship in response to heat stress. And the gene is called HSP for a heat shock protein, beta 1. And what it does is it acts to prevent the aggregation of unfolded proteins. It actually binds the unfolded proteins preventing them from aggregating and allows them to refold or be removed from the system. Okay, San Diego animals make more of it and they survive better than the Santa Cruz animals. Now can we find the DNA changes that result in the higher expression of this heat shock protein in San Diego? And the way this gene and most genes are regulated is there are th- proteins called transcription factors that bind uh, sites called promoter sites that allow you to begin the expression of the protein of interest. So this transcription factor only binds a specific sequence, okay? If the sequence is wrong, it doesn't bind as well. And if the transcription factor isn't binding well, you don't upregulate the production of the gene. So we can examine the binding sites from the different populations, and what we find is they actually differ. So San Diego versus Santa Cruz, there's two different binding sites, and each of them differ by one base pair. And A set of experiments done in the lab by grad student Poor, who I believe is here tonight, showed that the San Diego binding site is the better binding site for the transcription factor and leads to higher expression of the gene. This is a caricature of what happens. This is the transcription factor, and the transcription factor is activated by an increase in temperature that causes it to bind these uh, binding sites, which then upregulate the gene. And what you can see is for San Diego, it's a perfect match. And the regulation, this gene actually increases its production by 100-fold. When the match is imperfect, because of a single base change in each of these sites, we only get a four-fold increase in expression of the gene. Okay, so that led to a recent publication by uh, this you'll recognize. His name is Poor. And uh, Poor uh, led this experiment showing how uh, single base changes can have a big impact on thermal tolerance. So to wrap up, I'd like to say the ocean is warming. Geographic ranges are changing as organisms must either move, adapt, or go extinct. And we've also seen evidence that phenological changes are also apparent. So these things together are enough to make us worry a bit about what's the future of, of our marine food webs. Certainly things are going to change and the question is, is there enough redundancy in the system that if one species moves out, another species will, will take its place? Uh, without that sort of redundancy, I think we're likely to see significant changes in the productivity of marine fisheries. Second, natural populations harbor extensive genetic variation, and it's that variation... That natural selection sorts out and makes winners and losers uh, depending on local environments. And as we've seen, mutations, even at a single base pair, can substantially impact uh, adaptation. So, the final question is the hard one, and I don't have the answer. Imagine that. It's hard to predict whether adaptation can keep up with environmental change. Certainly anthropogenic impacts that speed up global warming aren't helping anything. But is there enough genetic variation that natural selection will do its thing and allow populations to persist? We know that in some cases they won't, but in many cases they will. When we overexploit living resources, we reduce population sizes, and that results in losses in genetic diversity. And remember that genetic diversity is key to adaptation. So these are the sorts of things we need to keep in mind. And with that, I'd just like to uh, thank you all for coming. Thanks to my lab group, uh, these and, and others. And thanks to the many, many copepods who have sacrificed all <laughs> this work. Have you tried seeing what happens if you lower the temperature? Uh, we haven't worked on that, um, but there, there has been some work even on the same species that I, I work on, uh, dealing with what genes are responsible for cold tolerance. The animals do get cold in Alaska. That's certainly an issue. The pools can actually uh, ice over, and that could be the opposite sort of stress. But I haven't worked on that myself. A question just to reconcile two ideas, Uh, my layperson's understanding is that warmer climates, at least on land systems, uh, provide greater species diversity than do more polar regions, let's say. So would you expect in a long-term heating, uh, equilibrating maybe after humans are gone or something, would there ultimately be more diversity? Well, again, it's, it's hard to say. The, the thing about marine systems that is, is uh, fairly clear is that tropical species are living closer to their thermal maxima than uh, temperate and, uh, species in particular. And so as the climate warms, uh, there is a concern. I mean, we see coral bleaching as a good example of that. Corals seem to be living quite close to their thermal maxima in a lot of places, and so uh, as temperatures increase, if corals disappear, corals are the substrate for one of the most diverse marine communities for sure, uh, then we might expect diversity to decrease. But all is not lost. Uh, A number of colleagues have been looking in coral reef systems. They go to places, you know, there's extensive coral reefs, but there are areas that get exceptionally hot on the same reef as they've been, you know, studying bleaching and all that. And uh, there's corals living in those places that are too hot for corals to be living. Go figure. So, again, selection has been able to uh, favor certain genotypes within a species, and they can persist. Now, as far as your question, were you asking about whether diversity will get higher further north or just diversity in general? Uh, It's not obvious to me that diversity will increase. The only uh, thing that might lead to that sort of uh, scenario is the fact that uh, global warming is certainly due in large part to increases in carbon dioxide in the system. Carbon dioxide, you know, uh, while it turns water more acidic and all that, is also you know required substrate for photosynthesis. It's quite clear that some algae are seeing increases in productivity, and those increases in productivity might help uh, uh, increase diversity but I, I haven't seen anybody stating that global warming will increase diversity in the ocean.
1: Okay, so we have a couple of more people that are going to ask questions, and then uh, then we 'll be a little bit out of time sure, did you want to ask oh. a what about adaptation? Won't, won't the uh, species just adapt to a new environment over time?
0: Yes, within limits. So species will adapt to their environment provided that there's genetic variation within the population to get you there. So, you know, if we required uh, three arms in order to survive in some environment, we would not adapt to that because we don't have genetic variation that would allow us to have three arms. New covers coming in. There's, I'm sorry, new mutations new coming. coming
1: in. New, new species moving
0: from one ah, yes. Well, that's that's certainly true. Yeah, um, but those species usually that are moving in, there's two ways that can happen. One, they're increasing their range and becoming globally dominant. Or they're moving from some habitat that they can no longer survive in. So uh, that's why we say organisms need to either move, adapt, or die as the environment changes. So uh, the adaptation part is the part that I'm most interested in because that's that's what evolution is all about. But certainly, as I've documented, uh, organisms are moving as well in order to find habitats where they can survive.
1: Okay, so one last question. Um, I was just wondering, in the future, I, um, you previously mentioned that um, with the copepods, the population of the Vancouver Islands were way less resistant to higher temperatures than the populations in San Diego. Have any uh, research has any research been done to see if those two populations together produce viable offspring? Like, at, at what point in time does it divert to a different species?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's my whole other research career. Uh, that, in, that was
1: my guess. That was my next guess. Yeah,
0: thanks for the lead-in, and the, this this talk will continue now for another two hours. <laughs> uh, that was my hope. That was my hope yeah, actually. Yeah. Uh, We do know that Vancouver Island will interbreed with the other populations. In fact, almost all of these populations will interbreed in the lab. The uh, southernmost Baja populations seem to be coming a new species. That is, uh, most of them cannot interbreed with California populations. Um, One interesting aside... Uh, In doing these experiments of crossing between populations, we've looked at two different Southern California populations that are both thermally tolerant. When we cross between them, we were surprised to find that the hybrids were super tolerant, which means that the two populations must be doing things slightly differently, and when you put them together, it's somewhat additive that they can actually do better. So I currently have a student who's trying to find out the genetic basis of, you know, superbugs.
1: Very cool. Thank you. Uh, well, thank you for a fascinating talk and thank you all for coming.
0: You've been listening to a podcast by
1: University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.